From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 53. We've got one of my favorite people from the baseball world on the show today, a really accomplished college baseball coach who will share some tremendous insights, not just on player development and coaching, but also some strategies for parents as they navigate the college recruiting process. And I think he's got some really good insights um, in light of the uncertain times in the world today, what it means for college baseball, both players and coaches as we move forward. So we're in for a real treat with this one. In lieu of a sponsor this week, I wanted to give you a heads up on something that we're just starting to offer. You see, since we opened Cressy Sports Performance in 2007, we've offered distance-based online training. However, because we were sticklers for quality control, we only made it available to those who'd first visited one of our facilities for an in-person evaluation and some technique coaching. Basically, we didn't want to water it down when we were really proud of the product. We wanted to make sure that everything that we sent out into the world was really representative of our philosophies. That said, over the years we have created systems that have allowed us to work from afar with folks all over the world. These clients range from Cy Young Award winners to Olympians to triathletes to weekend warriors. And of course, the majority are baseball players, which is our most well-known area of expertise. Recently, we toyed with the idea of expanding our online offering, but we were waiting for the right time to do that. And given the circumstances surrounding the current pandemic, it seems like that time is now. You see, with all the cancellations and postponements in the baseball world over the past few months, we've been fielding hundreds of inquiries from players, parents, and coaches who are seeking direction as they prepare for uncertain baseball futures. And in many cases, they're doing so with very limited equipment availability. We're here to help. With that said, you can now work directly with Cressy Sports Performance Coaches via online consulting. To learn more and see if it's the right fit for you, please shoot us an email at csp.trainonline at gmail.com. Again, that's csp.trainonline at gmail.com. And just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, we're confident that we can meet you where you are and help you get to where you want to be. Again, that's csp.trainonline at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Today's guest played his college baseball and received an undergraduate degree at Birmingham Southern. He also completed a master's degree in sports administration at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He started his college coaching career as a pitching coach at Huntington College in Alabama in 1993 before returning to Birmingham Southern for three years. He briefly coached at Jefferson State before returning to Birmingham Southern as a top assistant for four years of the most successful time in program history. In this span, the team won 196 games four Trans-South Conference Championships, and made three consecutive appearances in the NAIA World Series. Their 2001 team posted a school-best 55-11 and 11 mark and captured the NAIA National Championship. Thereafter, in 2002, he was hired as a pitching coach and recruiting coordinator at the University of Georgia, where he was for four years. He then spent three seasons as an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at Auburn from 2006 to 2008 before heading to Mississippi State for seven seasons as both associate head coach and pitching coach. In seven seasons at Mississippi State, he made four NCAA regional trips, two super regionals, and won the SEC tournament and advanced to the College World Series in 2013. He returned to Auburn as a head coach in 2015 and holds that title to this day. Along the way, he has coached 27 Division I All-Americans, 
39 all-conference performers and seen 14 of his former pitchers make their major league debuts, including eight since 2014. Perhaps most interestingly to the context of our developmental discussion with this podcast, he has also turned 31 pitchers who went undrafted out of high school into MLB draft picks, including the number one overall pick in the 2018 MLB draft, Casey Mize. He's also one of the absolute best people in the industry. I got to know him well while I was working with Team USA in 2015, and we've stayed good friends all along. He's also the dad of three daughters, so we've got that in common. I think you're going to really like this show. Please welcome to the show, Butch Thompson. Welcome to the show, Butch. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. I'm very excited for our chats. We've always had a lot of good discussions, whether it's at Pitchapalooza or USA Baseball or a million other times I've seen you. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and we can go in a lot of different directions with this, but I think I want to start with, let, let's talk about your path to coaching. How did you initially make the transition um, you know, from playing to coaching and, and what drew you into it? I guess I can start by making it funny, right? When you know that you had never been from Little League all the way up through college, when you know you've never been the best player on your team, you probably need a plan B, you know. <laughs> I always dreamed of being a major league ball player like everybody else and doing all these things as a ball player. And I played every day that I possibly could until they told me that I couldn't play anymore. But there was always in the back of my mind, um, you know, I, I think I figured out identity a little bit sooner maybe than some others. Um my senior year of high school, I was coaching spring football. Mm-hmm. I loved my coaches. I always, um, the coaches that motivated me, the coaches that made me, you know, feel special sport, you know, I, I don't think it was all bad. Sometimes we say that's a negative to get your identity wrapped up in the sport. Um, you know, now that I've been doing it, <laughs> you know, my whole career, I, I don't think it was a negative necessarily for me, but, uh, even in college between my junior and senior, year of college while everybody's going to the Cape Cod or, you know, all these great collegiate leagues throughout the country. I went back home to Amory, Mississippi and started my Legion team there, um, you know, with 15, 16 year olds and was coaching while I still had another year to play college baseball. So I always had that little microchip and wired that way. You know, I was, like I said, never the best player on my team, but I was the you know captain of my high school football team, my junior college team. Just you know, that was always kind of the skill set that I had, and I think I figured it out early. You know, it's funny. There was a book. Um, it's called The Captain's Class. It's an awesome read, and I, I, I read it a couple of years ago, and I remember they they looked at I think it was the top twenty five like teams in the history of sports. So it was Michael Jordan's Bulls. It was you know the Brazilian national team under Pele, and one of the things that they talked about was one of the commonalities of a lot of those teams was that the best player was never the captain. It was, you know, they talked about everybody thinks Jordan was the captain of that Bulls. It was actually Bill Cartwright. Um, and I, I think there's something to be said. It's hard to be the best player and the best leader at the same time. Would, would you agree with that in your, in your coaching experience, in your own kind of personal experience? You know, every team, it, it, it wasn't always that first rounder or that first pick or that, you know, bona fide All-American. Mm-hmm. The glue of every team that I've coached has always been that guy that, you know, maybe the fans, maybe outside of that locker room, People didn't recognize the value that if that person wasn't there, this thing would be a house of cards. So I not only agree with you, I would say I've seen it my entire career that you are built around one strong guy that can just 
he can connect the top, the middle, and the bottom and bring them together. And the best teams has been a guy that's had the ability uh, to do that. And that's not saying the best player, um, you know, is not just he's a me, me, me guy. That's not saying that at all. But he's so captivated into doing whatever yeah. he's got to do on a daily basis to get prepared to make us great by what he physically does. But that that captain's always galvanizing and keeping the top, middle, and bottom connected in some, you know, synergy way. You know, that one plus one equals three happens with that that captain in the locker room. You know, I'm I'm actually really interested. There's a lot of talk about the the concept of range, um, given the book that just came out, the idea of being a generalist versus a specialist. And I think, you know, you look at a lot of like the, the head coaches out there. I think of like Mark Calvey, obviously you, um, you know, guys who were successful pitching coaches before they were head coaches. When you first got into coaching, did you did you look at it very generally? Like, were you coaching an entire team, or did you hone in on the pitching coach aspect of it and become very specialized before you, I guess, you came full circle and got back into head coaching? Yeah, it was one of my regrets. A couple of ways, what you can and can't do kind of opens and closes doors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you threw over 85 miles per hour, I really couldn't get my bat in position. So, you know, I got the slow bat, so they quit letting me hit. You know, once you get out of junior college, you're like, yeah, you can't hit anymore. The game's passed you by. And, and pitching a little bit longer, it's like, okay, I need to specialize. I need to do the best I can to build a space in here and create a career. So it was, you know, the game kind of took me into the pitching and trying to be a special specialist in that area. And it's really one of my biggest regrets because I would say that, you know, I, I grew up in a mobile home and grew up in Mississippi and all those things that everybody, you know, once they feel like they get to a certain stage, they brag about their their humble beginnings. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was in a position to where, you know, I have to make this work mm -hmm. or I have to go back home. And my regret is probably my first, I don't know how long, five, six years, let's just say, it was all about what can I do to provide for myself, make a name for myself bust into this industry, you know, take it by storm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that put the player first in the whole heart. I've always cared. I've always respected. and I always loved the profession of coaching. But I wish I could have those five or six years back now that I'm 30 years into it. And I could go back and and, and what I've learned from those first five or six years where I, I think it was a little too much about me. Mm -hmm. And when you make it about – teaching a player how you take a young man, a young person to become a man, and you're teaching them ultimately how to run their own show where they don't need you anymore. That's the mark of a coach. Those first five years, I was trying to make a name for myself, and, uh, you know, I regret that. Do you think um – you know, obviously, you've, you've come full circle in the sense that you, you worked as a pitching coach at, you know, at Auburn, at Georgia, Mississippi State. And now you're, you're at Auburn as a head coach. What were the were there growing pains going to the head coach role? You know, having been very focused on the pitchers, you know, only for all that time period where you had to, you know, go through a learning curve right as you, you shifted into the head coach role. You know, I was assistant for 23 years, so if I'm never, if I'm ever going to be prepared to be head coach, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have used any more time to. To do it, actually, you know, I was a, I was a junior college head coach when I was 25, oh, and I'm like, I'll be a head coach forever. Yep. And then you start on this 23-year journey of being an assistant coach. Um, you know, the biggest thing that hit me, and I would say this for every assistant, I became a head coach in the SEC when I quit pursuing it. Mm -hmm. I started having, you know, whatever it is now, it's the eight or nine pitchers make it to the big leagues in the last four or five years because – 
it was about their journey and not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I gave up that deal, I wanted to be a head coach for so long, um, and that seemed to really be the pursuit. When I blocked that out and just, you know, you've heard this saying over and over: you just try to do a good job where your feet are planted, things happen. But what I didn't realize becoming a head coach is I've been right next door. You know, with John Cohen, I'm his associate head coach. With Tom Slater at Auburn, I'm in the office next door. With Dave Perno, with Brian Shoup, I'm in the office next door to all of those men. And I didn't realize all the stuff that was in their brain. If you can handle something, not keeping anything, but there's so much that we can do to help our head coach. Um, that we don't have to just take everything to him. I didn't realize how much was going on and how many boxes were being checked and how many rooms were open in a head coach's brain from, from vending to donors. And as a pitching coach, you are specifically just drilling down like, you know, the spin and this ball and this pitch. As a head coach, you're not only thinking about that, you're thinking about the emails that you've got and, the people that you're accountable to above and the people that's paid money and, and invested and drove three or four hours and making a decision. The weather has been the hardest thing I've had to deal with uh, thinking about as a head coach that I've never thought about as an assistant. There's a saying, I think uh, I remember reading in like the, the world of kind of entrepreneurship and career growth is if you want to have job security forever, figure out what your boss hates the most and get really good at it and take it <laughs> off its plate. And um, I always come back to in, in entrepreneurship or in any like small business or any business for that matter. Michael Gerber wrote a book called The E-Myth, and he talked about it. Every successful business, there's three things. There's there's the technician, the entrepreneur, and the manager, right? So, in a, you know, if you're looking at this as like a college baseball program, right, the technician is the coaches on the field, making sure that, you know, players are playing well, they're learning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the entrepreneur is the one that has to go to donors, right, that has to help, you know, yeah. get, get, get funding, also has to grow the program on the recruiting side of things and then there's the managerial side the you know the head coach has got to oversee the rest of the coaching staff they've got to oversee the budget all those and if you look at it from that perspective like coaches can really break through if they understand what they're really good at underneath that umbrella and and more importantly probably what the head coach absolutely hates to do right (laughs) yeah and you know if I ever go back if, if if my journey takes me back to be an assistant coach I would be better in that category of helping and serving at a higher level by having to sit in the head coach's chair and understanding what's really going on in that head coach's mind. That's great. All right. So we're going to, we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about pitching. Um, because let's be honest, most of the people listening to this are, are probably pitchers, parents of pitchers, um, you know, and or coaches who may be, uh, trying to impact those folks. So, you know, before you ascended to the head coach at Raw, you were at Auburn, you were known as one of the top pitching coaches of the country. Um, and you've seen a lot of pitching change since your first coaching opportunity back in 1993. So what are some of the non-negotiables? What are the things that from a pitching development and evaluation standpoint have not changed over the course of those, you know, 30 years or so? Yeah, I think we were saying spin before we started measuring spin, Yeah, you know, and we started putting it into RPMs. I think we knew when a ball had ride and when a ball was sinking And when things were happening, we had the old school terms for that. I love that we've gotten to a point during my coaching career where we, you know, have some numerics and we define that a little bit. Um, Now, I I think there's some more steps to figure out, you know, how to add and how to tweak and what to do. But I I think spin 
has always been there. And I love it because I think it can develop some identity with the pitcher now. Because the younger any man in living life, any ball player that wants to be great, and you talk, you use the word specialist or specializing, you've got to know who you are. Yeah. What is? I mean, Bruce Lee. I mean, I, I love the saying. I'm not. I'm not scared of the man that's done. Uh, you know, ten thousand kicks yeah. one time. I'm scared of the man that's done one kick ten thousand times. Absolutely. And if you're trying something new all the time and you know, you're throwing you're throwing four seamers with, with no spin and you're throwing sinkers with high spin. It's like an identity crisis. So, you know, to know when somebody's got low, low spin, I think of a Kendall Graveman. It's a big leaguer now that I was fortunate enough to be around for, for four years. The ball would, would sink, and every time we'd go up, he's backing up all the bases. And, you know, once the spin and everything, the track man came into play, then, you know, we got like 1950 on our spin rate below 2000. So, hey, let's go be the best sinker ball pitcher in America. Absolutely. Jonathan Holder, I, I think yeah. you will probably be working with Jonathan now. Uh, so we spent a lot of quality time <laughs> together. Great, great guy. You know, one of my favorite guys I've ever coached, you know, he started his college career with 27 scoreless innings as a reliever. So that's almost getting through your entire freshman year, I think, till postseason. But Jonathan had this uncanny four-seam fastball with a high-high spin and, you know, this vertical break on the breaking ball and, you know, that was his setup. And these two guys played on the same team, but they were completely different style pitchers. I, I love where spin has helped us create some identity. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of believe from thinking back through the years, what I discovered, because I got a great head start on a track man being at Mississippi State, and we were able to have one of the first ones the first year. I think it was like LSU, UCLA, Arkansas, maybe eight schools in the country. Yeah had this technology to try out and get started with. And we dove into it. We immersed ourselves into it. Um, you know, I think proper timing is huge. Yeah. Um, I think that covers up a lot because I think about Dr. Andrews. I've come full circle now where Dr. Andrews is still my team doctor mm-hmm. um, here at Auburn, which is amazing. And I really think about my time when I was a pitching coach at Birmingham Southern. I'd go cross town, um, you know, to, to his uh, – institute over there that uh, really got things started and you know i think about dr glenn fleissig and dr Raphael escamilla and just trying to be a sponge with those guys that they were they were as that they were doing things and then you know as i developed in coaching i get to speak at the national coaches convention i think in chicago um about 2012 and you know i kind of tried to build something off hey you can never repeat the same delivery twice and you know, I think we've over-mechanicized a lot of things. And I don't even think I can pick up my pen right now and autograph my name 50 times mm-hmm. and, and, and ever do it the same way twice. That's true. Um, so, you know, I asked Dr. Fleiss because they've been doing the, you know, the, the kinetics, the, the, the most motion analysis forever. And has anybody ever repeated the same delivery twice? And he said no. And... uh but he said, just be careful. And I said, well, who gets closest at doing it? Who's the best at repeating a delivery? And that's where he mentioned, you know, a 35-year-old man. Because how many how many hours and thousands and hours? And I know he'd bring the whole Malcolm Gladwell thing in here to, yeah. you know, the, the power of 10,000. Is it true? Is it accurate? You know what? You know, I could be pitching for 40,000 hours, and I wouldn't be good enough to pitch in the big leagues. There's some 
some required baseline skill, I think, and, and gifts that are part of it, not just hard work. But when you can never repeat the same delivery twice, what is the pursuit? So I should have started there uh, because I think people are on a pursuit of repeating that same delivery twice, especially with young, young amateur people. And it, they mimic, they look alike, there's similarities. I love all that. But um, I think it's a trap. I think it's a crutch. Um, so I love spin. I'm, I, I think proper timing uh, and rhythm and breathing mm-hmm. and the the talent of command. You know, yeah. I, you know, it gets a little old. And I think you've heard. I just I've been so impressed with you, Eric, with seeing you. You know, it was one thing to see at USA Baseball. It's another thing to get online and, and read and try to learn from you, which I have. And so many people listening to you have. Thank you. I think the most impressed I've ever been with you is when you allowed me to come to Atlanta and watch you with a group of physical therapists. And those people, those really smart, sharp, sharp people are hanging on every one of your words. You're, you're, you know, I'm like, all right, Eric's pretty cool. We're hanging out here and we're doing USA baseball, but then we're, we're back over here. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a strength coach. He's good. But then I see you in a room with physical therapists. Not many people can do that. I might could hold myself in a room with other pitching coaches, but for me to walk into, I don't know, walk into another room, another expertise and control the room and lead the room and people be learning from me and another skill. I've never been so impressed. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I think, but I think that's, you know, it's something you, you do without even realizing it. Right. I think there's, there's teaching your players, but then there's also teaching your coaches, you know, the, yeah. the, the future of the industry. And I think, you know, we, we, we definitely, whether we, we, we outwardly speak of it, we, we have a, an understanding as an industry that we do have to pay it forward and, um, you know, and, and have those yeah. conversations and, and share our mistakes and, you know, what we've learned from like, Hey, I was an idiot. I did sleeper stretch till the cows came home from 2007 to 2009 and probably, uh, messed up some shoulders in the process until we found better ways and i'm sure you look back on your coaching career and there are things that you taught that you're you know man if i had had a rap soda 20 years ago i would have changed this kid's career and that's what motivates you right yep you know i I think about when i got started you know i didn't know everything when i got started so who is it it's pat mcmahon it's darren schoenrock Mm -hmm. you know those are the men that kind of you know, we talked about a drop step and come to balance and break the power and throw and finish yep. and You know, those things. And I'm just saying 30 years later, it's like, uh, you know, another place I was headed is like, man, you know, a lot of guys can throw 90 to 95 now, mm-hmm. you know, more than ever in history. But, you know, and we talk about command. I, I just that's another one of my big things is do you have authority over the baseball? And I wish we could put a number to it. You know, he throws 95, but he's got you know, you know, 78 command. And, yeah. you know, I want 95 command. I, I want to start speaking in terms of that because that's how other people are speaking. And then, uh, you know, I do think I, pitchers grow so much in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think gradual development sometimes is better than just, hey, go, you need to go gain 30 pounds of muscle. Uh, I'll give you two and a half weeks. Um, but this mass equals gas is another big one for me. So, you know, spend proper timing, talent of command, the breathe, the rhythm, and then that, that ground up core strength is kind of held the test of time for me.
I'm curious, uh, you mentioned, you know, eight or nine big leaguers over the past four years. You obviously had a, a first overall pick in Casey Mize. Um, one of the resounding themes that I've noticed, and we actually, uh, you know, talked about it on a couple of recent podcasts, is just the idea of like late bloomers. Like people very rarely talk about, you know, Justin Verlander being, I think he was like 86 to 88 when he went to Old Dominion. Um, how many of those guys, I mean, you've seen so many big leaguers over the years, how many of them were absolute studs coming in versus guys that were, you know, they were 87 to 90 with maybe a, a decent secondary pitch that went on and surged? Um, I'm always curious. Yeah, you know, I, I again, you know where I'm hung up. I'm hung up on identity. And really, I stripped those guys for the most part. So I took all these quadrants away from Kendall Graveman, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So we go sinker and slider, and we're splitting the plate. Mm-hmm. Nothing magical. You know, we try to try to get those balls to start sharing space out of the hand, and ever how long we can do that is to our advantage. It's like adding – some type of perceived velocity because now the velocity is when the hitters got it, you know. Um, I think a coach provides direction and then you let them roll. Um, I really want to remember who said basically we are just the guardrails. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't take credit for that. I'm just, I steal everything I can get that I like, <laughs> just like everybody does. Uh, yep. You know, Jonathan Holder, okay. We don't need these four or five pitches. Jacob Lindgren, you know, I know you're a starter at 90% of college baseball, but let's just get two pitches going. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still be the Yankees' first pick. Didn't know it at the time. And, you know, really, you know, you think about, you know, maybe mom and dad because dad was a great ball player himself. It's like that was a lot of trust, you know, yeah, to do that. But we've stripped them. Um, I, I can't say that I thought – I thought Brandon Woodruff would, was going to be a big leaguer. Mm-hmm. But he pitched the least for us in college. <laughs> All those guys pitched a lot more because Brandon threw five innings his senior year of high school because nobody could catch him at his small Mississippi high school. And just for him to get to his identity, for him to get to his direction, it took a little bit longer. But you could just see this, you know, he's like you draw up the perfect pitcher. This is a real man, a real frame. Yep. He does his work easy. It looks like he's playing catch. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this guy, if he is still allowed to play and has a uniform on, he's going to make it. And so I, I just, I get caught up into thinking, I think Woodruff always looked like a big leaguer. The Brewers saw it. Um, but all these guys were just, you know, Kendall Graveman's 165 pounds coming out of high school. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Holder, we almost, you know, after his freshman fall, he wanted to be an outfielder too, so the pitching was lagging behind. There's no identity, no definition, no recipe. Hey, go home and talk to your parents uh, this weekend, you know, around Thanksgiving, and then come back and see if you want to maybe go to a junior college year. And then he jumps out his freshman year because we're super coaches and we know so much and throws – 27 scores and has 39 saves, you know, in the SEC after three years. So um, it's amazing. The recipe, the identity, and knowing specifically who you are can make a ton of guys jump, um, you know. Would you say, I mean, we've talked about spin quite a bit so far, and I'm, I'm always intrigued at 
the perspectives of, of pro guys. We talked to Adam Ottavino, Mike Soroka, both those guys talk about just always like playing games, messing around in the backyard, like learning how to manipulate the baseball differently. When you see those guys that are able to really spin the ball at an elite rate, whether it's with a four seam or with, you know, obviously a, a secondary pitch, are those guys that always just tinkered with it? Or were they guys where, you know, they came to school and there was one magical moment where they figured out a new grip and, or a new cue and everything changed for them? I think you're just trying to keep from being an average bear. Yeah. I, I think if you got high, high, high spin, that's great. We can work with it. If you have a low spin, then maybe quit trying to act like him with all that spin over there. You're, yeah. you're just trying to stay out of those mid ranges is what we started finding. I'm, I'm looking forward to what the next level is of what we learn. Um, you know, some of the, the sidearm and, and, you know, guys maybe pitching as far as you can to the right is an advantage for some because you're not average stuff coming out. Like, you know, every hitter, I think, coming up, especially as an amateur, it's like they have their own computer where they've seen this average right-hander a majority of the time for the most of their career. A lefty throws them for a loop, and anybody that pitches from any extreme throws anybody for a loop because there's not as there's not enough information or at bats against uniqueness, if that makes sense. So, I man, if you're going to be vanilla delivery and vanilla velocity and vanilla spin, you're going to have to do something or figure it out, or you're going to get vanilla results. And in, in, in my opinion, and I know it's a basic way to to look at it, but I believe that to be true. I love that. Now we we talked about the concept of just don't don't be average, um, be different in some way. Whether that's a you know a, a big time sinking fastball or a four seam that takes off or something that's got some natural cut, but you also are well known for your understanding of how to create elite submarine and sidearm pitchers. Um, and I know you've had some success that you've spoken at it at some different concepts. Uh, conferences we've both been at so what are some things that you look at as you determine whether someone's a good fit for trying to drop down whether that's in terms of trunk tilt with the same arm slot or an actual lower arm slot well i'm i'm such a genius that here's what i did i'm sitting here and i'm watching i'm a pitching coach in the sec and i'm watching uh, ray tanner win back-to-back national championships i'm watching him with you know, a couple of guys with, you know, 40 and 50 appearances in college baseball running 80-82 that are submarine that are getting into every ball game at some point for him, you know, and I'm like, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have that. I don't have that, you know, tool on my tool belt, basically. And I'm like, okay, well, Scott Sullivan's a great friend. He had over 600 appearances in the big leagues. Um, Chad Bradford's a friend, Mississippi boy, you know, so you got money ball with Chad Bradford and he's scraping his knuckles. I'm like, I just want to get better at it. I just want to learn. And that's how good, I mean, people are awesome. So it's Scott Sullivan, Chad Bradford. Would you come together? And we did camps for three or four years. We called drop down camps and we built it. And when we started, you know, young people, it was like, all right, submariner is basically for the guy that, can't get anybody out and he's about to get cut and he better do something, you know, yeah. it's probably like Wakefield as an outfielder. Now he's got to, you know, here's the knuckleball. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the end of the rope type deal to be a submariner unless you're, you know, to Colby or one of those guys that were just awesome. You know, even, um, you know, there's so many guys that you saw at the highest level. It's, it's amazing when you watch amateur baseball, how you see the vanilla 
yeah. when you watch baseball tonight, you see the exact opposite. Yeah, everybody's and different. That is the pursuit, you know. Yeah. So when I watch amateur baseball, I still see the British Redcoats marching in formation. And, <laughs> and they're just in lockstep and you know, it really doesn't work. And when I see cones and everybody throwing at the same distance, it scares me. And then when you watch the highest level, it looks like chaos, but it's really, it's just being to the, it's working to the individual um, is what I'm seeing. And I got those two guys together and now it is awesome to see where people are reaching out to us because they, they think we're the submarine guy, <laughs> you know, so all you're trying to do is you're trying to, pr- to figure out, <laughs> in your mind how to um, be competitive, how to get that pitcher in your program that may add another element or piece like it did for, for Coach Tanner and those guys. And, you know, just I wanted to learn the skill. So Scott and Chad helped a ton. And, you know, little things like, you know, putting your back spike in the ground where you can get your whole foot down and you can stay in a lane uh, for a pitcher to be able to bend at the waist and and really embrace you know, a weaker position and stabilize right there. And I know that the back and everything is so important. That's yeah. part of your world there, but how important it is for that back. But, you know, human nature, you know, because of this weaker position, you know, as a, as a, as a young submariner starts going to the plate, all they want to do is arch up yeah. to try to find that stronger. It's, uh, it's just, you know, the human body is trying to get to a stronger position, but, what you really try to teach a submarine guy is to accept that weaker position. The goal is to make 80 look like 90. It's not to make 90 look like 80, you know? So yeah. um, that, that those are some of the big things that you just start learning initially with these guys. And then, you know, when you're facing that opposite hitter, you know, the goal, if you're a righty and you're, if you're a submarine righty and you're facing a lefty, that lefty gets the advantage of probably seeing the ball a little bit longer and, you know, the goal isn't to make embarrass him. It's to really just be careful and take this thing out of his swing yeah. and, and position your defense. You know, a submarine guy, if I'm a right-handed submarine guy and a left-hander gets in the box, man, I'm moving people. I'm getting my second baseman in the four hole. I'm yeah. looking at my left fielder, moving him to, to the line. Those are the next step things that you, that you get when you find the experts in the field and we learned a ton. Absolutely. I'm curious. There's, there's obviously two ways for, you know, a release point to, to drop, right? Either the, the arm action can stay the same and the, you know, the, the lateral trunk tilt can change. So that would be consistent with, you know, what we see with like, obviously a Bradford or a Adam Simber or even like Steve Ciszek's one of our guys who does that as well. And then there's also guys who will actually lower an arm action where the trunk tilt might actually not change. Do you find one is easier or harder to coach, um, given the sample size you've had? No, I, I just I just think it's such a feel thing. I think the most success that I've had doing this for close to a decade now is just speaking in terms of maintaining a ratio, the shoulder, the elbow, and the hand, and and so I try to keep reminding them of what it was like to be an upright thrower because yep. that's what they've been so much their whole life. It's like you're an upright thrower, so what does that ratio look like? And, and as you move to your slot that ratio should remain. And that's why we want to stabilize and, and stay there. You know, what's so neat is usually the guys that are more at the 90 degree angle, like a Scott Sullivan, the two seam is usually preferred because you're trying to get sync on the baseball or you get that natural sync. And Chad Bradford was so uncommon and so unique. You know, 
he was basically taking his strike zone and turning it upside down. He was trying to make his breaking ball go up, and he was, and he was actually throwing a four seam. That's incredible. Because now that spin on the baseball of a four seam, when you're way down there, a two seam's not going to do anything but go right in the ground. Yeah. In theory, the four seam's like coming up and back down. You know, like like a dolphin going through the water. And it was just it's fascinating how you know once you get a delivery. Um, not talking about mechanics per se, but once you get a delivery, your arsenal has to match it. Mm-hmm. And if you're the side, you know, the submarine guy also, if you remember back to when you threw an overhand curveball, yeah. well, really, once you're at your submarine position, I know it's not over the top 12 to six, but it, now it's just, it's three to nine, but it's really throwing that same breaking ball from this new posted spot. Yeah. If you will, uh, and we call them sliders, you know, with the submarine guys. But really, the mentality is throwing an overhand breaking ball from that posted new spot that you're trying to pitch from. That's really interesting. Um, all right, so we're gonna we're gonna shift gears a little bit and and actually talk about, I guess, the business of college sports a little bit. So I, I distinctly remember us having a conversation. It was the last night of Tournament of Stars back in Cary, North Carolina. We walked from the Embassy Suites to whatever the restaurant was next door in 2015, and we were talking about the the modern college recruiting world. And you were still at Mississippi State at the time, and I, I distinctly remember, you know, in that conversation, you commenting on just the sheer volume of outreach that you were receiving at an SEC program at that time. What would you, would you say that the outsiders have no appreciation for just how many parents (laughs) slash kids reach out to SEC programs on a daily basis about playing at that level? Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, all the neat things like me and you've been able to connect whenever we want to, Mm -hmm. um, is amazing. Um, you know, this, this world is going to keep moving into a connection from, from that standpoint. Um, you know, emails used to be a deal where I couldn't leave the office without returning every one of them. That was the mandate from my head coach. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think I could keep a job if I had to <laughs> actually do that. And you, you can tell when, you know, a lot of things are mass produced. I, yeah. I think I'm like anybody else. I like the, the personal individual connection. And I feel like we've lost that a little bit. Hey, in 2002, when I was working uh, at Georgia, you know, I was the pitching coach and the recruiting coordinator, (laughs) man, that would be a really tough job in in 2020, Holy cow! you know, but you could identify a player and track them and build a relationship for six months to a year before you make a decision. You know, our, our world has gotten to a point now where it's blink and when we get a connection from somebody, a great relationship that we have um, from our Rolodex of maybe we've gotten a great player in the past or there's been a, a real trust standpoint, we have to act upon it today. Yeah. Because a lot of this recruiting today is, you know, I used to think about Gilligan's Island. I'd get off the bus and I'd, I'd go in from school and I'd watch Gilligan's Island and the, the little jingle there, their little their, their music would say a three-hour tour. And it seems like all you got to do is go on campus, look at the facility, see the bling, uh, look around a little bit. You really can't connect with a coach until you're like a junior. But a lot of this recruiting has happened in the freshman, sophomore space. So I I just, you know, how it's changed so much. It's not rocket science, but this stuff has turned into a blink um, and decisions are made on a blink as opposed to the way we used to do it. Hey, and I'm not saying which one's better or not. Yeah. Um, 
What I'm saying is that we all have to constantly adjust. And if you're not willing to adjust, I mean, we're seeing this in Major League Baseball now. We're seeing how a, a new way is ushered in of thinking and, and it's starting to be processed now. I want to stay in the space. I want to stay relative. I'm trying to figure out how to blink, how to make this work for our program while still holding on to some principles in my mind of like, you know, I think Tim Hudson is not only <laughs> was a great pitcher that hopefully, you know, goes on that Hall of Fame ballot next year, but I think he's an unbelievable man that can focus for a long period of time and has a ton to give back. And I've never been happier to have somebody on my staff than him. Gabe Gross has played in the World Series. He's been a first rounder out of our program. I still want people to get to know our people. Carl Nunnemaker is our recruiting coordinator. I can't tell you how much more time he spends on recruiting than I did in 2002. It's amazing how gifted he is and how much he does for our program. And there's not a lot of time left over for a beautiful wife and a couple of kids he's trying to raise. Um, It has just changed and changed and changed. And I still believe John Maxwell put it the best when you start talking about a position of leadership or building your group. At the end of the day, you still, you get who you are, not who you want. Mm -hmm. But I got to find a way for our program, just like other great head coaches throughout the country, to market, to manage, to present our program in a quick fashion because my people are our strength. Yeah. Of our program, of Auburn University, it's our people. You, you're going to have great examples, people to invest in you. Your son's going to turn into a man. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're a deeper level of people having to pay attention. But I, I still hang my hat on you get who you are, not always who you yeah. want. What are, you know, with, with this, the sheer volume of people who are, you know, interested in playing for an Auburn, you know, what advice would you give to the high school players and parents? Like, where are they making their mistakes in that outreach? Um, do you have like certain recruiting pet peeves that drive you bonkers as you work your way through that? <laughs> Um, I just think, you know, you, sometimes you get one shot at that email or that correspondence. Does that make sense? You get yeah. that one direct connection. So if I need something from you, Eric, I need to specifically get straight to the point. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't need to know that you and the, the lab played in the backyard when you were four, you know, <laughs> wiffle ball. I just yeah. get right to the point. And then I think it's really smart of like, I have a sincere interest and it's because of the level of baseball that you guys play because you're in the Southeastern Conference. I'm specifically interested in this degree, and your school has it. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that know me the best that should be respected in your community. I love that. And, 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 and then I would, and then I would love to hear from you. That that is that would just be that would be impressive. Mm-hmm. And that is impressive. Let's let's go on record. Can you absolutely tell the difference between an email written by a kid versus one written by a parent? <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> always. And and it's their work, right? Yeah. Because when they get to us, I'm not gonna have mom and dad out there yep. practicing four hours a day with us. It's gonna be the boy. You know, and then once you do get those face-to-face encounters, you know, thinking about your question, what's jumping in, in my in my head is the respect. If you have a mom and a dad or whatever guardian and a player sitting there, you know, cutting off a parent or showing any lack of disrespect or talking about whatever your high school coach or 
summer coach or somebody training you and them not doing a good job and they've held me back. Just remember, we're coaches too. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lack of respect would probably translate right to us. That's a great point. I, I, I still believe I'm looking for somebody to that has been, you know, raised well, that's going to add value. This is a two-way street. And, you know, we got a heart where we want to reach out and help everybody. But this is an SEC locker room. We're looking for the brightest, sharpest, the most well-rounded. You know, we don't want just the – I want it all. I want a person, I want a student, and I want an athlete. And I don't think we have to sell short um, with our program on any of those features uh, to the best of our ability. I'm curious, and I think you probably answered this question indirectly because – you do, you do such a good top job prospecting and trying to find the right people. But, you know, I've heard stories from various college sports about how they sometimes have to unrecruit players when they arrive on campus. I, I feel like Nick Saban um, spoke about this in the past. Um, I remember Tim Corbin, you know, after their national championship year at Vanderbilt, you know, talked about making their team like earn the gold star on their, their black shirts in the fall. Um, have you had experiences where, where, Players that arrive are so accustomed to being showered with praise during the recruiting process or, you know, guys that maybe were draft candidates who opted not to sign um, where you actually had to bring them down a peg, you know, tactfully when they arrived. Um, or is that something you haven't experienced? Well, I love what John Cohen used to do. <laughs> he used to do pride versus responsibility. And it's a great way to look at it because, you know, pretty much our our lineup here before our season was so abruptly ended. If you look at our lineup one through nine, I would imagine eight of the nine, almost every guy, probably where they came from, were hitting in the three hole. Mm-hmm. All of them. Yeah. You know, so they're the best one from their hometown. Everybody's been beating the drum, and and somebody's got to hit ninth for us. Yeah. When Gabe Gross makes this lineup out, somebody's hitting ninth, and he's probably been a three hole hitter his whole life. And you know, there becomes this pride versus responsibility. Um, I, I still think these guys want to be great. Mm-hmm. They want to pursue it. I, I think they're bigger, faster, stronger than ever. We talked about the tick up and in, in velocity and, um, these guys are special athletes, but I do think they're the most distracted group that's ever come through that's because cool. of these phones that are in our hands. The information, uh, that's going through their mind. Um, you know, mental health's a big deal now. Yeah. And stress and anxiety is seems more real than it's ever been. These kids are awesome. Mm-hmm. Our, our, most of our kids, the vast majority of our kids were raised outstanding. Mm-hmm. But I tell you, we have the most success in the development of a player by reducing distractions. Yeah, It's really less is more from you need to just focus on this, this, and this. Who you're running with is more important than it's ever been. You know, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile on May 6, 1954, but he didn't want to run that day. But the two people he was running with, Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher, is like, oh, we're running. <laughs> you know, but really, who you're training with, who you're working, to get it simple. You know, they, they say the number is like 150 relationships that you can really manage. And I got, you know, 4,000 in my phone here when I look at contacts. Interesting. How, how do I keep up with the group that I need to, to be growing, developing and influencing? And how can I let some other stuff go that I just can't control? Mm-hmm. How can I help one person this week? Because it, there's a lot of anxiety involved when I sat down eight days ago and I go like, Hey, I got to go help the world because that's, 
I mean, baseball coaches are, I think, amazing. They have to do more with less. <laughs> There's a lot of different things to figure out. There's different types of athletes on their team. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're always wanting to make a difference as a leader and you want to help people out. But then at the end of the day, you get more done by going like, okay, I'm going to go help this person yeah. and that person. And you get more done. This information, it's just an overload. And when we can peel back and make things simpler for not only ourselves, but this age group, mm -hmm. the first thing we do is take some of those rocks out of their backpack, figure out who they are, mm -hmm. and let's go to work. And it's really a simplification because these guys, <laughs> these guys that we're getting, man, they got a lot to live up to. Yeah. They're trying to get to Omaha, win it. They're trying to be a first rounder. And it's like, oh, big fella. Yeah. This is really what we need to do. Yeah. We need to get to this class on time. We need to make sure we're eating right and sleeping right. And let's just, let's just slow down mm -hmm. and let's really get a process going and let's be part of something bigger than, our, than ourselves. And I think we're just building things in here that we're going through the same things. I want to win. We want to do well, but really with this age group, these young guys that are coming through right now, I just, What's important now in a simplification, we're seeing more results. I love it. All right. So I'm going to tell a, a brief story that leads into what I hope will be a really good question. So the second Friday of every month here in Jupiter, Florida is food trucks in Abacoa. So right outside Roger Dean Stadium, which is the, the Marlins and the Cardinals spring training, there's, you know, 30 food trucks out there. So our daughters love to go. So my wife and I took them on a Friday night and it coincided with World Wood Bat, the, the big uh, underclassmen um, fall ball tournament that takes place down here. So my wife and I took our girls one night. We're walking through the parking lot on the way back to our car. And sure enough, we bump into Matt Blake, who at the time was with the Indians, is now the, the pitching coach for the New York Yankees. And Matt and I were talking and sure enough, Butch Thompson comes walking along too, <laughs> there to recruit. So we had the, the greatest connection, I think, in the history of, uh, of, of the baseball world randomly in a parking lot, uh, as, as the sun went down. And so I remember my, my kids were climbing all over creation because we were racing to get them home to bed. And you and I had a good conversation going while, while Matt was talking to my wife and we were catching up and you, you commented on how you've been digging in deeply on the topic of fear with your own research. And I was super intrigued and the girls were being absolute maniacs and we're like, all right, we got to go home and go to bed. <laughs> and then we put them in bed and I turned to my wife and I'm like, Anna, I'm really curious what Butch was talking about. And you, so you, you piqued my interest for the last, oh, what's that? Five or six months. So here's your chance to, to share what you've learned about fear and what, what drew you to actually look into it. I, and I think most coaches that have, you know, we've worked Jupiter for more than two decades, a lot of us and scouts, you know, anybody listening to this, they can, they had that image of us being in those grass parking lots <laughs> yep. and it's, it's rainy, it's dark, so your <laughs> shoes and everybody's and it's a dark parking lot. You know, it's just great baseball. I could just, you're setting a scene and I could put myself and I know so many others can as well. <laughs> you know, there's so much fear is such a huge topic today and um, this was the journey that we went on last year. I think I just, the awareness clicked in for me and it started layering, you know, so I had like five things happen last year from a, from a point of fear and, you know, there's books and all these things, but this is kind of mine, uh, from that experience of last year's ball club. Um, the first one was from coach die. Pat die is probably the, the legendary coach at Auburn. You know, it's Pat die field there at Auburn and, um, he's still around. He's still an encouragement, uh, for sure. He loves our players and our program. And 
he just talked about, man, fear's real. I'm like, you're coaching in a game, you're coaching like in the Iron Bowl. You know, there's some fear, unless yeah. you're lying. Um, you know, you're a big 300-pound player out there. There's still some fear associated with, with mm-hmm. playing, so that realization. But he's like, you know, at the end of the day, your courage has just got to be greater than your fear. Yep. And that really stuck with me, and that was the first message that I think our team got in regards to fear is your courage has got to be greater. We get to Omaha, and we got an astronaut, Jim Boss, who – you know, was an Auburn grad, um, works out at Colorado now teaching. He's the longest <laughs> spacewalk in the history of NASA. Wow. So Jim spent almost nine hours, eight hours and 56 minutes out there, you know, longer than any other astronaut. And I'm like, once I got kicked up on this fear thing, I was, Jim came to Omaha with his daughter and said, can, I, can he speak to the team and see the team and just, just meet the team? So, you know, it had been Auburn's first time to go to Omaha last year in 22 years. So, you know, a lot of people that love Auburn and love baseball were excited, which is so neat. But he made that journey. And, you know, when he got through talking, I just I talked about, you know, almost nine hours out there. Um, and at the time, you know, not everybody was coming back. We've had some tough times in NASA of, you know, some of our astronauts and some of these special missions not returning. And I said, how did you deal with your fear? And he just paused. Uh, just a very smart man. He's an Army Ranger as well. Just a ton of respect for Jim. And, and he's like, you know, I think my preparation was greater than my fear. And he said, Butch, I've been doing that walk for 20 years. I, I knew my job so much. I think I prepared so well that fear really wasn't in my mind. It was like, what is my task? That's awesome. But when he said, I've been doing that for 20 years, my preparation was greater than my fear. And you, something's got to limit it. You know, I took the, the team over to the third feature was last fall. I took the team to, you know, Fort Benning uh, because it's only 45 minutes away. It's an easy bus ride. And that's where, you know, if you're going to be an army ranger, you got to go through Fort Benning. Yeah. And Colonel Scarpolo, you know, a 36-year Army man, was running a group and met with our team and put our team through the paces. It's pretty neat that an Army Ranger can go through the Malvesti confidence course in about, you know, under five minutes. And an SEC ball player, it takes about 17 minutes. It's a, a lot of respect for those Army Rangers. Wow. Um, and I said, here I go again. You know, I go like, Colonel Scarpolo, how does an Army Ranger deal with fear? He said an Army Ranger deals with fear because of their trust and of their person to their left and to their right. That's good. And that's where I mentioned, like, who you're running with. That's where I mentioned, like, you want to take the focus off of you and put it with your group. Young people, coaches, it don't matter. If you're going to live life, the people that you run with, having a Paul, a mentor, and a Barnabas, a brother, and a young person that you're building up, having a, having a framework and having the right people to your left and right, that's how I, I, I bet go down the road. You are so successful, but I guarantee you there's somebody to your left and right. There's, you know, there's a Chris Chataway and a Chris Brasher that made you run faster, that encouraged you, that kept teaching you how to aim high. I love Les Brown when he says, hey, <laughs> people don't fail because they aim high and miss. It's because they aim low and hit. <laughs> But your people 
has got to be greater than your fear. You know, and then perseverance. We had we had a couple of our guys. You know, we've been we've been trying to pursue Omaha for the last couple of years. Two years ago, we're at Florida, and we're the last team not to qualify because a ball in extra innings in Game Three of a Super Regional bounced off our right fielder's glove and went over the park over the fence to end it. And I knew my culture, my ball club was okay because my whole team went to right field before we were able to come back and shakes Florida's hands for going to the World Series. But, you know, this past year of being able to make it to the College World Series, we're sitting there against the number three national seed, Georgia Tech. We're down not only to our last out, but our last strike. The perseverance became greater than our fear for a player like Stephen Williams because there was redemption because his perseverance was greater than his fear. You know, with that two strikes, he had a walk-off grand slam. <laughs> That's what sport is so great about. And then the next year at North Carolina, I'm talking about great programs, great coaches, storied programs, men that you respect, that you want your program to emulate and be a lot like. I really wanted Cody Greenhill to throw the last pitch of a Super Regional to get us to Omaha for the first time in 22 years. And the biggest reason why is because Cody Greenhill is the one that threw the pitch that bounced off of Stephen Williams' glove that went over the fence that ended our season. So we're right back this this past year in a game three of a Super Regional, and Cody Greenhill records the last out to get us there. Our perseverance has to be greater than our fear. And then, you know, finally, I just to keep from getting too long-winded, I just the fifth statement for me of where this has really come into play is, uh, you know, your faith's got to be greater than your fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a great Auburn fan, Kurt Stevens from Atlanta, Georgia, who uh, who we lost him. We, we we've lost him here in the last few months, and uh, he 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 moved into a hospice situation. He has a beautiful family, and uh, I went to see him, and uh, I uh, asked if I could come see him, and I, I got to come see him three or four days before he passed, and he was always an encourager. I'd, I'd kind of touch base with him and connected with him during his whole process here of of his cancer and his walk. And but every time I called him, he lifted me up. I'm worried about a ball game, and he's always like, "Coach, man, it's awesome. It's great. You stay with it." <laughs> and I got to him, and I was like, "He knows this is it." And I'm like, "Kurt, I've been doing this thing on fear." And he said, you know what? And he pointed to his wife and he talked about his boys. And he's like, that's what really sucks is that I'm leaving them. I really, really love them. I don't want to. But he's like, you know what? My faith is greater than my fear. God's promises is greater, (laughs) you know, than my fear. That's huge. Yeah. And, you know, you look at Matthew 22, you go verses 35 through 40. I mean, just our greatest commandment to love God with all your heart and then second like it, love your neighbor. You know, we need some of that right now. But, you know, our courage has got to be greater than our fear, our preparation, the people we surround ourselves with, with our perseverance and our faith that can really minimize fear. And I think it's a good message for, for us all right now. That's a tremendous one, particularly in light of the time we're recording this on March 24th. 
um, you know, maybe build on that. There are a lot of people that have, have fear about the, the status of baseball right now. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to get your take on that. Um, let, let's talk about the unfortunate situation throughout baseball, particularly with respect to college. What are the challenges that, that, that they're still working through, um, you know, as we, we move this forward? Obviously, this year's season was canceled. We don't know what's going down with, with summer ball. Uh, do you have some thoughts? You know, I, I, I think I'm like most people. You like, okay, this is your challenge. Here's the mountain. Get, get to the top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of as a coach, as a ball player, as a competitor. It's like, all right, it's on. Um, this one's different, right? Yeah. This one we can't, we can't see. We don't have answers. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think our players want guidance. Um, they want direction. That's what they're built off of. You know, put me in, coach. Mm-hmm. You know, teach me how to do this. Yeah. How do I make this breaking ball better? Yeah. And we can't even connect with them. And then our parents, you know, I'm, I'm, I, our players are being connected with by our staff every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we really found ourselves um, that sport should be willingly, should willingly take a back seat currently. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those moments that's bigger than ball. And there's a lot of gaps to be filled in. Um, but it's the unknown. And I've never seen it before. You know, I think about the greatest, uh, the greatest generation. They were asked to take up arms and go fight overseas or, you know, either, you know, maybe you stay here and you work and you provide for the, for the cause. And they're called the greatest generation because they fought for our freedom. And we're asked, myself included, is to go home and chill. Yeah. <laughs> it's not normal. Yeah. Uh, none of this has been normal, uh, but it's been very real. And, you know, the best we can do is heed the advice as it comes. Things are changing rapidly. Um, you know, people are saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. This is a great time to, to, uh, you know, to maybe be pruned, but to grow yeah. and, and to go through some things. And, you know, leaders, I think, are just putting forth a mood right now. I think leaders are putting forth of like if my, players were standing in front of me right now, I would say it's going to be okay. Yeah. Now, what are we, who are we and what do, what do we rest our laws on and what is the one thing we should be doing? Who can we be helping? Just understanding the precautions. What are the rules to the game that we have now? Everything's changed and we need to change. I, I love legacy by James Carr yeah, great and you know, one of his deals is like, Hey, you know, there's growth and then there's decline. And the all blacks, they go for that gap. That's probably why they haven't, you know, experienced so much decline is yeah. because they change while they're on top. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a week now. Let's figure out the, the world's a little different. Our world's a little different. Let's figure out, let's change while we're on top here and see what we need to be doing in light of the changes. Yeah. I, I, so many people have been talking about everything that's wrong and certainly there's a lot wrong right now. I think very few people have talked about the opportunity it presents. You know, like I, I was joking with my wife, this is probably the longest vacation we'll have, we've had since our honeymoon in 2011. Um, get more time with our girls, but also, you know, more opportunity to do professional development stuff, whether it's watching, you know, a lot of in-services, whether it's reading books that have been, you know, stockpiling on the, the, the bureau next to our bed or, um, you know, to be honest, like I talk to a lot of athletes, like there are things that you never focus on because they're not sexy, right? Working on your flexibility, 
you know, like for, for players going back and watching game film of, you know, classic events, like seeing how they were played, how they were managed, all those things. There's so many ways that people can get better, even if they can't be out on a baseball field or, or in a weight room, there's always some low hanging fruit. And I think a lot of people are too busy, uh, you know, on the fear side of things to start appreciating that there's an opportunity waiting right behind it. I, I think it's great. You know, I, I told our guys the other night, this is an opportunity. Once we return to baseball, I think there's going to be a separation because mm-hmm. some guys are going to attack this phase personally for themselves to keep strengthening their mind, the strongest tool that they possess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if anybody is, is interested in their craft right now and goes and really works on their craft or really gets stronger, I mean, those are going to be the best coming out of this thing. Because I think there is a human nature tendency to lay it down right now. Yep. So that guy that keeps his axe sharp right now is going to come out ahead. There's no doubt once we, of course, move past this moment. That's awesome. Well, we always, uh, at the end of each podcast, we always rock a lightning round. So this is where I, I ask a quick question and your response can be as long as you want, but I'm, I'm curious to get your takes and you, you actually just kind of hinted at some of these first couple. So what's one book that you think every player should read? Um, I just, in the last few months, Chop Wood, Carry Water by Josh Metcalf. Mm-hmm. When I talk about just the simplicity, uh, of, it takes a long time to do something instead of you just getting it right now. This book does that. It, it does some stuff for teamwork, but it lets you know that you just keep working on your craft and it takes a period of time. Don't just do it and move on. This one sets here and, and, and you see over a period of 10 years to become a samurai archer is not just happening overnight. Um, I also love, I, if you're really into, if you're the captain of your team, mm-hmm. I want you to read The Score Takes Care of, you, of Itself by Bill Walsh. I go. thought it was fascinating. And just a lot of good points, and I think it still tans, stands the test of time. That's great. How about the uh, the coaches out there? What's one book every coach should read? Yeah, I feel like most people have read Legacy, although it's probably the most impactful yeah, a good one. book for me in the last five years. Uh, it's James, K-E-R-R, but it's pronounced Carr, and then yeah. Go Giver by Bob Berg. Is is five good common sense quick read that I think would give some great bullet points and make you a better leader. I got gotcha. you. Well, we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to ask it anyway because you might answer it differently or give something unique. If you go back in time and give Butch Thompson some advice 20 or 30 years ago um, as a young coach, what would it be? Yeah, make it about whoever you're trying to serve and lift up. I love it. Uh, and uh, it, it's going to make a difference for you. It is the the best way to grow yourself. If you if you make this about you and not who you're trying to connect with or invest in, um, it, it, it's a tougher road. All right. Favorite coaching memory? You know, I, I, there's so many special moments. There's so yeah. many heartbreaking moments that will yeah. never leave me. I, I, it's just that feeling of euphoria yeah. that you start in August and, you know, I think this is year 29 for me and been the eight world series. It's that euphoric moment of when you know you made it to that world series or, you know, 2001, we won the whole deal under, you know, coach Shoup was our leader at Birmingham Southern NAI and just that euphoric, that real emotion. You know, I still love real emotion when you can see somebody explode of 
their whole life working on this sport or this whole season's investment come out, you know, in, in five minutes time. I like that real emotion of euphoria so much more than I like hitting a double and whatever kind of, you know, hand signals we're giving at second base, the manufactured emotion. I just love those moments, those brief moments of, of, of just real emotion. I love that. Um, so we have a lot of kids and their parents who listen to this podcast together. That's actually been one of the biggest surprises to me. It's how often they, they, they did that. I know you've got, you've got three girls yourself. So I'm sure you spent a lot of time, uh, listening to stuff in the car together. So with that said, both from a parent and a coaching standpoint, if you could give one bit of advice to the kids, what would it be? And also one bit of advice for the parents. Yeah, I think I've already mentioned the aim high. That's kind of my, my go-to. <laughs> you, you've got to aim high and you've got to work hard and you've got to be wanting to make a difference. Um, unless you are Jordan, unless you are Bo Jackson, um, you know, you, you're not going to be able to just step over people. You're going to need people along with you on your journey. And, you know, Ignace Paderewski, I, I guess I hadn't mentioned the work hard concept. Uh, Ignace was a famous Polish pianist and I just, <laughs> he was one of the world's best, but he, he talked about hard work and he said, if I don't practice for one day, I know it. Mm-hmm. And if I don't practice for two days, the orchestra knows it. And if I don't practice for three days, the whole world knows it. <laughs> you know, whatever our craft is, like, this is a blessing for me to be with you, Eric, because this is me trying to do whatever I can to be, uh, you know, a decent coach and keep my axe sharp, you know, during this time. Yeah. Um, but every player and everybody that has a skill, I think you have to look at it that way. That if you don't keep working on your skill, you're going to know it. Yeah. And then, you know, your team or your family is going to know it after a little bit of time. And if you don't work on it for a while, then we, you know, whatever your craft is, when we come out of all this, the whole world is going to know it. I love it. What about the parents? If you could give them a bit of advice as they go through these these uh, recruiting processes or, you know, have a player playing at that level. Yeah, it's just back to do you love your kid or do you love them if they're a great player? <laughs> but great just point. love your kid. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we if you aim as high as possible, you know, you may not, you know, get what you want, but you may always get what you need. It might wind up being the the career that you're supposed to have instead of that goal that you wanted. It, by pursuing something good, you may wind up be getting, you know, surrounded by the right certain people. You know, I, I think about Ecclesiastes nine ten. It says, "Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might." <laughs> and then, and that's why you got to work hard because, you know, you just you got to love your children, and you provide for them the best you can to give them opportunities. We just have to be careful when we do everything for them. Don't take away their ability. Uh, John Cohen, uh, just I've taken it when I left him to our program of FIO, figure it out. Mm-hmm. Don't take that mentality out of your child because you do so much for them. Absolutely. Don't give them everything they want. Give them what they need and make sure that they still have this light bulb centered around figuring it out for themselves. Yeah. Set the guardrails, right? Let them, let them figure it out within those confines. 
That's right. That's great stuff. Butch, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I actually really uh, learned a ton myself. And um, as expected, our conversations always prove fruitful. Um, your Twitter is three strikes underscore AU. Always have some good stuff that you're sharing on there. And certainly we wish you and, uh, and Auburn baseball well as we, we work our way out of this conundrum as an industry on the whole. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time to jump on the call. I keep taking care of that beautiful family, and thank you for all that you do for our great sport. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.